Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. Well, folks, welcome back to Season 3 of Coffee and Conservation. I'm Beth Baker. I'm glad to be here, and we have a great guest today. We have Mr. Stanley Wise, who owns Wise Family Farm here in Pontotoc, Mississippi. So welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's really great to really great to have you here. We got to do a field day up at Wise Family Farm in November. Of, mm-hmm. That of was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was great to just see everything you have going on. So this is a, a great way to to even share more broadly about the enterprise and the evolution of it. So thank you for being here. Thank you. So just to kind of dig dig in first to the history of the farm. Can you tell us a little bit a little bit about how and when your family, you know, acquired the farm and and just a little bit about the history of it? Well, in just a few years the farm will be 100 years old. Um my grandfather actually purchased the farm. Uh he had a young family uh, ranged uh from just uh, young 3 or 4 years old up to 12 or 13. And there were six of them in the family, uh, six children, <clears throat> and he and my grandmother, his name was Monroe, and my grandmother's name was Carrie Bell, and um, they farmed with their father up the road a couple of miles, three or four miles, and they had been farming there, and of course, as the fam- my, grand- my great-grandfather had quite a few children, and as the families grew, they kind of had to, you know, go out on their own, and and find their own farms and so my grandfather found one that uh, he thought he could afford and it was uh, 1926 and um, you know back then they were subsistence farmers my grandfather didn't have any there wasn't any wealth in the family and that kind of thing as a matter of fact the man that sold him the land he took uh, my grandfather borrowed the money from a federal land bank <clears throat> but he had to have a down payment. And the landowner actually uh, financed the down payment. And he didn't have any collateral except a pair of mules. And the landowner said, well, we will take the mules for the for the collateral for the uh, land. And he said, well, i got to have those mules to work the land. And he said, I didn't say I was going to take them. <laughs> so, anyway, you know, back then they did things on a handshake. But anyway, bought this farm. Well, it was really it's a it's a rolling hill kind of farm. It's very uh, there's a couple of places that doesn't have much ele- uh, a slope at all, so it's nearly level. That most of it has a gentle slope from anywhere from uh, two to six or seven percent, and it is highly erodible soil and. It's in the flatwood soil. It goes from what they call flatwood soil down to a herbo uh, clay loam, which is a very heavy gumbo-type soil. And actually, soil type changes about five times on this farm. But <clears throat> when my grandfather bought it, it was 80 acres, and that included a house that was brand new. It had not been lived in, and but he bought the house along with the 80 acres, and... Um, 
all the all of his neighbors and his family they told him said Monroe that is the poorest farm in Pontotoc County you're going to starve to death they really they really thought that and it was my father who was 8 years old at the time he said there were some gullies on that farm that you could actually bury the house in it was that that eroded and uh so that's how we came in uh the possession of the land yeah, you, you mentioned so many interesting points. First, first of all, the the several different soil types and how challenging yes. that is. Um, Very. As a producer, also the the state of the soils. If they thought if the neighbors yes. thought it was pretty poor land. It was very poor land. Um, and I think sometimes you know if folks are in flat areas listening, it's hard to really understand the scope of the gullies that you mentioned. I was just out on some highly erodible land in Carroll County, and. It's just really hard to fathom how you can use the land for anything when you see gullies oh, that big. Oh, absolutely. The uh, it's amazing the different. Uh, fortunately, uh, with my um, when I was with the Extension Service, I got to uh, work in several different counties, and so I understand the different uh, areas of the state that we that we deal with, and the different types of soils and different ways you have to work the soils. And it certainly varies from, you know, the Mississippi Delta soils to the really uh, highly erodible soils in the North Mississippi. Yeah, and that certainly makes it challenging for us working with the Mississippi State University Extension Service in terms of, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all model for a farm production system or even for conservation practices. It's It's very different depending on the region and the soil type and what equipment is available to folks oh yeah it's uh, actually farm to farm and you know that's basically one of the great things about the extension service is that um you know the the uh, agents are get to go to the farms and work with these individual farmers and that's something that a good agent learns over the years that every there's not one size fits all and you have to work with the resources that the farmer has and and the ability that he has to uh, make things happen on that farm. Yeah, and just the ability to be on the landscape and see the context of whatever problem it may be just adds so much value for the agent in terms of how they solve the problem or how they really understand the context of it. Right. Uh, Anyway, there's a... You know <clears throat> that uh, that cooperative effort between the state and the federal and the local uh, is so important to uh, the health and the soil and the well-being of farmers and farming and farm families and landowners and it, extension service makes that connection, but with all the resources that might be available. Yeah, them. yeah, I, I totally agree. It's just a, a really <clears throat> important bridge to right. make. Um, I wanted to go back to the the initial farm operation. Sure. You know, you talked a little bit about the context and placement on the landscape. So, what was the family farming at that time? Okay, well, at that time, the family uh, basically was subsistence farming. So they the first primary objective was to raise crops and livestock to be able to feed your family and then have enough left to sell on the market to where you could make that land payment or things so there you know there was no walmart down the road where you (laughs) could go buy things and so they basically bought the staples like 
uh, you know, flour and sugar and that kind of thing at the store and everything else they basically raised on the farm. And so um, they would try to raise, you would have to raise corn for the uh, livestock and to feed the, the mules, which they primarily used for their uh, qu- uh, to pull their equipment. And then, of course, they're going to feed themselves. And so there will be a, a huge garden. You know, uh, we might consider a garden a half acre in size to be a very good big garden, but to them, you know, they probably had three or four acres and just uh, vegetable production to uh, to put, and they had to put up and store and preserve, and they didn't have electricity because electricity had not come through uh, to the rural community at that time. So they had a lot of challenges, but they raised vegetables, and then they raised grass you know, for pastures for their hay. They also raised uh, <clears throat> sorghum, um, cane sorghum to for syrup to sell to the public for and not uh, to use not only in their in their diet and cooking for for the sweetener, but they also used it to sell to the public. Um, and so there was a variety of crops and mostly the corn and cotton were the big staples. Uh, the big crop that they might you might consider where they had several acres of those so they could sell the cotton <clears throat> and use the money you know for the family and and to pay for the farm um, so throughout the years we've had oats you know wheat corn soybeans cotton and of course uh, lots of different vegetables now while you can stop me wherever you want to ask some questions, but we'll go and tell you that that poor, poor soil <laughs> had to be uh, built up before they could t- could uh, utilize it to its full potential. My grandfather was a very smart man at the time, uh, even though he he had only a fourth grade education. <clears throat> he knew enough about uh, his family knew enough about farming and how to improve soils they came from their family originally came from uh, the hills of uh, Alabama in a much steeper uh, uh, highly sloping and very highly erodible soil so they knew how to handle these these types of issues and the first thing they did my dad said was to go uh, clean out all the barns in the area all winter long they would go clean out other people's barns for the manure and and put on the soil and then they would grow green crops and they would turn them over some like uh, Cerisa lespedeza which is a legume mm-hmm. and they would grow that legume out and then <clears throat> they would turn that under t- t- for the t- for the uh, organic matter and uh, they would apply the manure for whatever different crops they were growing and but the big thing they had to deal with was the um the erosion it was so highly erodible so the my grandfather knew that that he couldn't continue to let that happen and so they uh, began to terrace the land to you know hold that water back make it go where they wanted to uh and to carry it out where they had, instead of going out on bare soil that they would be plowing up, it would go out on some pasture that the, and, and that would hold the soil and, and hold it back <coughs> somewhat. The gullies that were already there, fortunately, uh, my father 
and he being eight years old and nine years old, probably he was nine when he did this, but he was a member of the 4-H club in the old school he went to at Lone Star Elementary. And, you know, they had local schools then. And so he had a 4-H club, and he used, a, for his 4-H club project, he took those great big deep gullies and they planted locust trees in huh. those gullies to stop that big that erosion. I mean, they had to do something because they already had that erosion there. And even the practices they were using, like terracing, uh, they still had that water issue because um, that uh, that where that water drained all drained down to it. Just they had created that gully over the years, so they ended up putting locust trees in there <clears throat> and they would once those trees those trees grow fast the old locusts black locusts they grow fast they're really bad they got splinters all over them but they're very hardy wood they're hard wood and they're also rot resistant and so uh they would once the trees got up it would take it took three or four years for the trees to get up to where they could use them but they would cut them down and use them for um fence posts huh. well the a locust is so prolific and it has so many seed that it would just grow right back. You know, they didn't have to do it. And still to this day, we have those locust trees. And that gully that my grand, my father planted when he was nine years old stopped the erosion. That's really interesting. I didn't get to see that when we were up on the farm. No, I, we didn't get to see that. But Well, and when we've got major erosion problems like that, sometimes I can really feel like, is there any solution to this? Or will I continue to just lose all of my land? That's right. And Uh, it can be really overwhelming for, you know, whether it's an engineer or whoever is out mm. there. Um, Your grandfather sounds fascinating. Yeah, well, you know, he everything, he wasn't educated. And I'm not really sure that he, you know, worked with his county agent. I, I really don't know whether he did but i know that my father being in the 4-h club was doing what the 4-h club was designed to do anyway so when the these these uh practices that the 4-h club members would learn in their club work a lot of times the fathers in the family would see what was going on and they would emulate that so it was really a demonstration and sneaky uh, yeah, it was kind of <laughs> But that's the way it was. You know, back then, uh, people didn't trust the government, and so the 4-H Club was very, very uh, uh, instrumental in getting the extension established in all of the rural communities. And so, uh, and our farm was no different. But mm-hmm. my father, when he grew up and was, was took over the farm, he was very much an extension person i mean the county agent was like a member of our family (laughs) and so uh we utilized that uh research information that came out of mississippi state to do that but my grandfather used a lot of common sense Mm -hmm. and experience and i'm sure called upon the wisdom of his family because they had farmed in that kind of land before to do the things he needed to do to make that productive and it took you know, 10 years, really, it took a long time to turn that farm around to where we wasn't losing yeah, soil. It, sound, it sounds like between him and, and whatever community he created, though, he was really able to pull from 
a lot of different expertise and ideas. Oh, sure. To, to make the farm more productive and profitable. Mm-hmm. And it's tools that we still talk about today, like using manure and cover cropping and yeah. terracing, like all yeah. these things you mentioned that we still talk about as needing to expand on, on landscapes all around the country. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> I asked my father over occasion and even some of my aunts and uncles and I know, I mean, without a map, and we're we're not looking at a map or anything like that, but they utilize the farm as far as those five different soil types on the farm to what it was best suited for. Mm-hmm. Some was just best suited for grass, you know, and other was best suited for uh, crops. And so they they and they rotated you know and that was one of the things that people didn't do back then was rotate but my father said that they were very good about rotating like corn and cotton because that those two crops took the best of the soil that they 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 put their those crops on their best on the best soil they had and so they would rotate those crops around which unbeknowingly they they might not did have done that on purpose, but it was really instrumental. Right. Mm-hmm. I also appreciate that you really described subsistence farming because, you know, we're talking about just 100 years ago, which isn't that long. It, it's not really. And and my lifetime, I'm, I'm 69, so I don't go back quite 100 years. But as a child, I remember we killed, uh, you know, we, we put up our own meat. We killed our, we killed hogs and put them up for the, uh, for the meat in the winter and uh we put up my family put up tons of vegetables you know we didn't go to the grocery store to buy things and my mother and my uh uh, grandmother they were such good canners you know and they they would can lots of things and so we ate uh from the farm but back in my grandfather's day when there was nothing to buy and they couldn't afford to buy you know, mm-hmm. uh, the Depression era came along, and if it wasn't for the good management skills of my grandfather, the family might have gone hungry. And but he was able to uh, when the f- f- Depression first uh, hit, he had an old truck, and someone offered him they needed the truck, and <clears throat> he thought, well, I really need to sell that truck and. I can do without that truck for a little while, and I'll sell that truck and pay the land off so I don't have that land payment. And he did. And, you know, but cotton got down to a nickel a pound, and it wasn't worth much. But they were at they were at a point that they could, could eat, you know. Right. If they could just make enough to pay the taxes and, and get by the, till better times. And that's, that's the way those people came through some hard times, you know. And, uh, it made them tough, but... They survived it. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think, too, that that experience and, you know, being able to provide food for a whole family on a farm, but also have the production system for selling certain components. I don't know that it will be as easy for our listeners to relate to that because that's not a very typical farm model right now. We either have, you know, small oh, no. family farms that are kind of specialized no. or very large commodity farms that are you know selling to commodity markets right we're storytelling right now you know we're talking about the past and and you're right it it can't relate you know many times i think about uh well what would we do if we you know if we really lost our 
what would we do if we lost our electricity or ability to go to the store? We've lost a lot of that art of mm-hmm. subsistence farming. And I'm sure we could go back <laughs> to it. It would be tough for a lot of people, and a lot of people wouldn't survive. But I don't think about those negative things. You know, I think we got to move on into the future, and we have lots of good tools uh, today that we didn't have back then. And, you know, those things came about in gradual. You know, we went from farming with mules to farming with a tractor, uh, which increased uh, the ability to get things done in a more timely manner, actually to take in more land or uh, if they didn't have enough land on on their own farm, they could rent some land. So it became, uh, over a period of time and after World War II especially, when men came home from the war, after running all these machines and all this horsepower, they didn't want to go back to a mule. Right. <laughs> you know, they. You could get a lot more done with. Yeah, with a you could get a lot. Horsepower. You could get a lot more done with more horsepower. One funny story I'll tell that. <clears throat> one day, my uh, it was my father and my uncle had come back from the war, and they bought a uh, one row. I think it was a farm all cub tractor. They bought a farm with uh, planters. And they had gotten their soil ready to plant. My grandfather had helped them, and they got it ready to plant with the mules. But they bought this tractor, and they wanted to plant it with this tractor. Well, they fooled with that planter for about a half a day. And my grandfather went to them where they were working under a shade tree, and he said, Boys, you're going to lose this crop if you don't quit fooling with that doggone <laughs> newfangled tractor and hook those mules up to that planter and go to planting the corn and they said papa we're going to plant with this with this tractor and when we get the tractor going we'll plan to do a lot more than the mules and he said well i don't believe you're going to do that i'm going to go hook up the planter so he went and got the mule and got the planter and hooked up and he started planting their corn and my dad said about the middle of the afternoon they got that tractor and planter going and said my daddy they said my dad and my uncle planted more corn in those two or three hours they had left of daylight than my grandfather could have planted in two days with Mm -hmm. corn and so my grandfather saw that and he said well you boys proved me wrong and he said i don't plan to hook these mules up anymore (laughs) Yeah, what a turning point, though. Oh, yeah, well, it, at least he wasn't, he, he could see, you know, people. Right. They showed well, him. You know, it was a demonstration, mm-hmm. you know, and that's just even part of the extension way, you know, we right. do the demonstration. And it's very important today, the demonstrations that not long ago you did, you know, we talked, you talked about the introduction. Mm-hmm. You, you came out to the farm and you were basically, we had a, dem- a demonstration there with uh, <coughs> cover crops on the soil. And so, uh, a lot of people got to see that, including myself. So, you know, if we yeah. can see things, we can change. But anyway, uh, as the time went forward, the focus of the farm changed. So we we went from basically making all of our living. As a matter of fact, some of the farm, uh, my grandfather never walked, worked off the farm. He always worked on the farm. But uh, my father walked off the farm and worked the farm, too. They built a general store, and they basically the little small local store fed the family and uh, helped feed the family, and the, the farm was able to, and at that time, because of 
the mechanical technology improvement, he was able to increase the farm, <clears throat> bought more land, you know, including the home farm, and then bought more land and expanded. And that that those crops were for sale, you know, not mm-hmm. necessary for use on the on the farm. So we've seen lots of changes even up to this day, you know, and we're still changing. Right. But it really expanded then with oh, yeah. your father. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the farm <clears throat> the the farm went from a subsistence farm to a uh, basically uh, an income-producing operation. You know, it went from a small farm to a lot larger farm. and So then you took over. Well, uh, you know, yeah, I grew up on that farm, and we were farming – uh, family land uh, that my father owned. My father and my uncle had a partnership, and they had, they they really the the start of. They had a little farm called it Wise Brothers Farm, and um, so so they had a partnership. We grew up together, and through the early late seventies, we were working somewhere around a thousand and five hundred acres. So we wow. went from eighty acres to fifteen hundred acres. We didn't own all that land. We rented. A lot of that land. Okay. So uh, when my father and my uncle got out of farming in the middle 70s, and uh, my brother and I took over, and then uh, we had some very hard times. Uh, the late 70s, we saw uh, rapid inflation of of things some, somewhat like going on right now. Fuel mm-hmm. prices went up. Uh, fertilizer, chemicals, everything went up. The commodity prices stayed low. Uh, we were having to borrow uh, money for 15% interest at the bank to oh, make wow. a crop on. Yeah, it was really tough. And uh, we survived until we decided to get out of farming. Uh, about 1984 was my last crop. Wow. And we, we got out <clears throat> that at that time. It was my last crop before... I started uh, looking for a job off the farm. We did not want to lose our land. A lot of farmers lost their land back then. They mm-hmm. tied up the land that the family had paid for over those years. You know, my grandfather, my father bought extra land, and we did not want to tie up land. We knew if we could keep the land, if we ever wanted to go back to farming, we, you know, we could. So uh, we we got out of the farming. And I went into the extension service in the late 80s, and my brother went to work in industry. He had a, a he was a, a mechanic and okay. diesel mechanic, and he, <clears throat> uh, my brother and I farmed together, and um, he went off to industry. I went, got to work for the extension service, and yeah. so it was really, I was glad I was able to work on the farm, still work with farmers you know that kind of thing and so when i went to work for them i i could understand what they were facing absolutely and i was admired those farmers that had lived through those times that we couldn't Mm -hmm. you know there and there were some reasons why and uh, our land was moderate uh, marginal land Mm -hmm. to the best at the best and a lot of people had a lot better land and they could survive and so i said back then that if things didn't change, all this land would go back to whatever it was best suited for, whether it was grass or trees or crops. And you know we're back to we're about that way right now. So a lot of the land that we were farming went into conservation reserve 
and okay. it needed to go. Mm-hmm. It needed to go there. So, but we started farming again uh, in about uh, so about less than twenty years later. We started back farming on a smaller scale, about two thousand, the year two thousand. As far as crop farming, now we, my father continued to operate the little eighty-acre farm. Uh, he rented out uh, most of the land, but he kept the vegetable end of it going. Okay. And so he like he enjoyed that, and that's kind of how we we got into the selling vegetables to the local area. So this is this is kind of off topic, but I'm curious. Um, you know, while you while you took the time in stepping away from farming, but also still working with the extension mm-hmm. service. You know, you like you mentioned, you still got to be a part of the farming community. Oh, absolutely. Work with folks. How? I mean, I can't even imagine how much you would have learned over your career to bring back when you decided to farm again. Oh my goodness! <laughs> because I know I learned so much every day. Every day, you know, working for the extension service is an opportunity to learn every day, and uh, and I would I say this if I could if I could work thirty years with the extension service and go back and be the farmer that I could have been in the nineteen seventies, I would have been a much better farmer, and my my vision was to be much broader and so back in the middle 70s all i could see was cotton and soybeans that's all i could see you know i didn't i couldn't see uh agritourism i couldn't see uh selling uh i couldn't see peaches and strawberries and those kind of things i couldn't see that if i could have if I could have seen that, we could have probably stayed on the farm and continued to work. But, yeah, education is the key, you right. know, and broadening your vision. I hear a lot of people, young people, <clears throat> I talk to a lot of young people over the years, and some want to farm, but they really just want to drive a tractor. Mm-hmm. And But if you're a true farmer and you want to, if you want to grow crops – and you want you love that outdoors, and you love uh, seeing things that you, the hard work you do, and you can see them, you can see it happening every day on the farm. That's the most satisfactory job you can imagine, is to see your handiwork build and build and build, and then at the harvest you see the 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 bounty or see the uh, the <clears throat> the benefits of your hard work, mm-hmm. and so. It doesn't have to be on a tractor, you know. It it can be on a bush, <laughs> it can be on a vine, it can be on a tree, and it all amounts to the same thing if you enjoy true farming. Mm-hmm. So, I tell, I told young tell young people, you know, if you you want to start farming, grow you two hundred tomato plants. You know, if you're seventeen, eighteen years old, and you want to you want to earn you an extra three or four thousand dollars in the summer. Grow two to three hundred tomato plants. Easier said than done. Also, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just winked at you when you said that, but it is it, it's it's work. Right. But the truth is, it, it's farming, and mm-hmm. it can get you started. And then you know, once you start, and you can grow. You know, uh, uh, I there is just not much opportunity if you're not born into a farm family these days, or you don't have. Uh, if and you've got and you don't have access to a lot of capital, 
and you don't you don't have the keys to the farm because if you're I'm talking about crop farming. So if you want to farm, there's other ways to do it. And there's forestry, and and then there's and there's vegetable crop farming. There's livestock. There's niche livestock. There's mm-hmm. uh, uh, all types of things that we can do on these small farms. We don't have to have 1,500 acres that Stanley Wise couldn't see anything except cotton and soybeans. We don't have to have uh, that to make uh, to grow and make a living and or at least help make the living on the farm. And you don't have to all you don't have to start out just farming. You can farm, you know, uh, you can use it. What I believe today they call that a side hustle. That that is that is the lingo. You are correct. (laughs) But, you know, there's two things you touched on that one I thought about earlier, too, with the subsistence farm that's circling back. And just how much opportunity, specifically in Mississippi, we have to grow so many different things. Just with our, oh, our climate, goodness. you know, oh, my three to almost. I mean, if you have a high <laughs> tunnel, you can grow four seasons. Oh, with the high tunnel, uh, you know, we we started using a high tunnel about ten years ago. Oh, you can grow all season long. You can grow all year long mm-hmm. in, in in North Mississippi, you know, and in 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 southern part of the state, that's not a problem at all. But even in the North Mississippi, where you know, where we have some of uh, the similar weather to Nashville, Tennessee, and the part of the state that I live in. So, with that high tunnel, if I want to choose my crops, you know, I can continue to grow all winter long, and I'm not talking about a hot house either. I'm talking mm-hmm. about using that natural ventilation in a high tunnel. So there's opportunities in Mississippi. And I was just thinking, you said, uh, you mentioned earlier that you grew up in Minnesota. Right. And, uh, you know, Minnesota has a wonderful soil. Some of the most, I've, I have a friend that farms up at Elbow Lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he, I've been to his farm and they have some of the most productive Rich, fertile, dark. rich land that I've ever seen. The deal is their growing season is very short. That ground freezes. Know. It does yeah. not stay. Uh, so up there you might have 90 days of growing weather, and here we probably got 130. Mm-hmm. You know, So we're almost double, to, uh, at least maybe not quite double, but we're almost double. And so we can grow such a different – they can't grow cotton up there because it's a long season. Uh, you know, we can. We can grow all these uh, uh, crop sets. You need a lot of warm weather to grow. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about the different farming opportunities, and you mentioned you know, how hard it is to get into farming, I think part of that, too, just like you got to learn so much in Extension, but you grew up on a farm. Sure. Is that in, that in, intuitive knowledge and the, just the things that are passed down through the family about oh, yeah. how to work the land and solve problems, you know, if you didn't grow up doing those things, it's hard to, as an adult, then say, "Well, yes, I want a farm, but I'm approaching living and problem solving in a whole new way now." Absolutely, um, yes. There are so so many things that I took for granted, I take for granted, but that I learned, uh, you know, from the a young age, just being on the farm with my family, and things that. Uh, not agriculture i mean uh, uh farming in general for instance planting uh crops mm-hmm. uh, you never you don't think about this but if you were if you're if you don't know anything about farming uh 
and you go and you buy a planter and you go try to plant whatever crop you're trying to plant, you don't know how deep to plant that site. See, every seed has a different you, seeding depth. It has a, de- a different depth. You also don't know that in what soil type it can be deeper in one soil type than it can in another because it can be some soils are are easy to pack and get a uh, once it gets a rain it gets real hard across the top and the seed can't bust through so you don't want to plant something that can't bust through that crop mm-hmm. so it's knowing where to plant what to plant uh, how deep to plant conditions of the soil you know and, and those are things that are basically I take for granted because I grew up knowing and so and with a lot of different crops because mm-hmm. imagine having to know that for oh yeah 20 different crops oh yeah well and you learn your soil uh-huh. you know I know the soils on my on on the family farm even though i still get surprised all the time but i i know my soils like the back of my hand and and where they are and and what they need on my own farm and but every farm that i the 1500 acres that i used to farm i had 22 different landowners i don't know how many fields but each one of them took a different level of of management knowing what to plant where so teaching young people this art, the skill, it you really they do they really need their handheld to help them get started, and that's one thing that extension can do for them. Mm-hmm. And the you whole know. business planning side, I mean, oh, twenty two landowners is that twenty two uh, individual leases? That I'd twenty two different. Yeah, leases. there's some there's some other business management happening Ooh-wee. there that we don't always talk Personal about. Personal develop, yeah. Oh wow, wow, yeah. Dealing with people in general, you know. Uh, uh, there's some things I wanted to talk about, maybe a little bit, or whenever you want to talk about them. But about uh, we really need to be, as Extension and NRC USDA, we need to be more in contact with our actual landowners. We have a very good contact with our farmers, but our landowners there are so many more landowners than there are farmers. There are lots and lot fewer farmers now than they were in the 60s 70s oh well even 80s and 90s we're losing the number of farmers all the time farmers farms are getting bigger and the number of people operating getting smaller but that land is still owned Mm -hmm. and the a lot of times the landowner is two three generations maybe even more from being an actual farmer on that farm and they need to understand what the operator that someone is renting their land what they're dealing with what they if you're just there and you say well i just want money you know all i want is money well eventually you're going to burn that farm up because that farmer the guy that's operating it he's going to mine it like a oh mine. you have just brought up one of maybe the most important topics, you know, that especially in the conser- conservation community that we yes. discuss in terms of land renters and farmers versus mm-hmm. owners. And, yeah. and in many cases, those landowners that you're, you're talking about not only are removed from farming, but sometimes they're absentee altogether and haven't oh, been back to the home place. So they don't know, uh, right, about the management that's happening, pros and cons of the management or stewardship, if you want to call it that. Um, yeah, and the state of their land over time and how they're protecting their 
investment, if if you will? Absolutely. Uh, If you own the land, back when farmers owned the land, you know, they could see the value of of terracing, conservation, farming, uh, maybe even cover crops and those kind of things as it applied to their own farm. But the further away we got from we get from that actual farmer, I'm not saying this because there are many landowners who do care mm-hmm. about their ground, about their soil, but there are so many that don't. And they depend on that renter to do what's right, you know. And a lot of times the farmers are now getting – we used to have share leases, okay? Well, we still do some. Most farmers want a cash rent. I mean, it's so because it's so much easier that they don't have to worry about taking uh, somebody's load to the grain elevator. They can just store everything on their own farm without having to break it up into different shares. But back when we farmed, when we began <laughs> to expand our operation – the landowners actually still cared about the farm, and so they wanted to maintain an interest in the farm, and so they would actually retain a share. And and most of the time back then, it was 25% of the crop, and they shared in 25% of some of the major expenses, especially when you had to lime it, which is so important to continuing to grow crops on the soil, and they would share in that cost. And nowadays, a lot of times they don't, you know, and they're just. But I really think uh, we have an opportunity as the extension serves, and I say we because I still feel such a close uh, kinship with with the extension here in Mississippi. Uh, we we really have an opportunity and an obligation to start educating more of our landowners and trying to focus more on getting to that person who are or group of people who own that land to make them understand the importance uh, it, it is to doing these conservation practices to maintain that land if it's uh, for the future generation. Absolutely. Um, and, and just improving, as you mentioned, I, th- I think we'll see, continue to see improvements in communication between the landowner and the renter along those exact lines um, in terms of both understanding how management on the farm, stewardship on the farm can improve that sustainability, but that important communication that to do those things, to really maintain soil fertility or build yes. it, costs money. And sometimes, you, yes. you know, that or or on the on the other side, it could, it could limit profitability by making certain yes. changes that are important to the sustainability. And so, yeah, I know I've seen several different conservation finance companies come up, but I've also noticed a continued growing emphasis on renter versus owner and how how to help those conversations along so that everyone's at the table and really understanding what it's gonna take for that long-term protection of the soil and, and the land and, and the food security on it, food and fiber security on it. But it's certainly a tricky subject. Oh, absolutely. That's uh, it's a touchy subject because uh, I'm, you know, as a, I'm thinking as a farmer right now, I might not want people meddling in my business, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, uh, as if you think like a farmer, you say, well, how do I, you know, as an extension person trying to get information to the landowners and get them to want to carry? Uh, how do we walk that line, you know, and try to 
try to do that. But we have our interest is in uh, preserving this land for the future. You know, future generations of farm. We got to feed this this yeah. growing population. You know, and it's important, and it should be important to every landowner that owns land that they should have as much interest in how that land is being farmed and what's being done to improve the soil mm-hmm. as the farmer that's actually bringing getting grass rock and there are really good landowners out there that do that but there are a lot that don't yeah Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.